Hello and welcome to the 99th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show we interview video game developers, ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developers themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game here to promote, which in this case is Legends of Kalasia by Boomzap Games. Chris, who are you and what do you do? Hi, I'm Chris Natsuume. I'm the creative director of Boomzap Entertainment. Um, I'm also a designer for our games. I've been working in the game industry now for, I've lost count of how many years. I started in 1991 was when I first started developing. So what is that, 25 years, something yes, like 25 that? 25 years. Best not think about it, but yes, 25 years. <laughs> there are people. There, there are literally people working on my dev team who were not born when I shipped my first game. That is a, that is an actual fact. Not even a glit in their father's eye. Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, yeah, I, as you say, I try real hard not to think about it. No, it's best not to. Uh, similar to me, I, I've, I've been around for quite a long time, and uh, yeah, when you say things like, "Oh yeah, when did Dune come out?" Like, yeah, ninety two. But I remember, oh, God. <laughs> you know, I, I try to tell people, like, that, that it's hard to imagine in the modern game development environment, you know, people who are coming out and starting to make games. Now, the first game I made, we were a little tiny garage studio back in Austin. I, I went to college at UT Austin down in Texas where I grew up. And the very first game that we made, there was like four or five of us. It was a little, it was one of the very first Doom clones, actually, to speak of Doom. Um, and we were, if, if you remember in those days, there was that rash of like everybody made a two and a half D, uh, first person shooter. You know, there was no up and down. There was only left and right, right? Well, they, they tried um, to, they tried to do it. Like, they were like, um, I think Rise of the Triad had, had that and they sort yeah. of like made this weird sort of attempt at making you look up and like, yeah, it was, it was terrible. So we, we made one of those. And when we made it, uh, we, it's hard to imagine. There was no internet then. I mean, it's impossible now to imagine a world without internet. When we made that game, there wasn't internet. And so we were all working at home. And on Fridays, we would put all of our data on real live, honest to God, five and a quarter inch floppy disks and get in the car and drive down, you know, to another part of Austin. And we would all gather at the programmer's house. We had a bunch of folding card tables lined up in his bedroom with all of our, you know, and you'd have to haul your, you know, we have laptops, we had desktops. You'd haul your big desktop and a big CRT monitor along with you, and you would sit with all the, you know, computers on the, these folding card tables and put the little disks in and out of the computers to swap data, and the programmer would make a build, and when they were done, we'd, you know, try to run it on all the computers and to, to consider the, the trouble of doing that. And, and And the fact that we were only swapping, you know, a couple hundred K of data to, to, with all of that trouble to now when, you know, if you look at, at Booms app, the, the studio that we run now, I've got uh 20 some odd people spread across Indonesia and the Philippines and Ukraine and Russia. And we're, you know, every day we're putting gigabytes of data up and down and downloading builds and never leaving our houses. I've got people working on our company in our company who I've literally never met that live in countries that I've literally never been to. <laughs> and, you know, to, to go from, okay, it's time for me to take the, you know, take my CRT monitor and put it in the trunk of my Subaru and head on over to Edwin's house and make a build to, hey, it's time to upload this couple gigabytes of information so that my Russian programmer can look at it. It's a, it's impossible to compare those two worlds of development. 
it's I like to equate this to the the the, uh, the rate at which um, uh, things have developed technology wise regards to storage and um, data transfer is um, I cite um, uh, Elite, one of my favourite games of all time, yeah. and uh, that I'm sure you're familiar with it. I hope you are, uh, and. Uh, that that game, the original game back in 1984, yeah, well, it was 1984. Came it was 22 kilobytes. Yeah, yeah. 22 kilobytes, and they had an entire universe using procedurally generated uh, algorithms and stuff, and uh, which was amazing, pioneering work at the time. And uh, like, but that's the size of the average well paragraph in an email, if that. Yeah, yeah, barely. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's impossible to even comprehend. You know? And uh, and you know you, they managed to squeeze so much out of nothing, almost. Uh, the Atari Twenty Six Hundred is also a good example of a machine that no one in their right sane mind would even attempt to program for, but they did, and, and very successfully in many regards, and sometimes but not so. I remember my very first game that I ever, and I use the word program very loosely. Uh, the very okay. first game that I ever, I ever typed in was we had this I even forget what it was a Timex Sinclair. I don't know if you remember this. It was this it was like one of the very first computers you could buy. This is prior to Commodore 64. This was one of the very first home computers you could get. And it had, if I remember right, a four had four K of memory total. Right? That's that's what you had on this thing. Four and it had this this thing that you plugged into the back of it. It was the size of a you know a large laptop battery. That added a, a whopping great 4K more memory to it, and there was no storage, right? There was there was no disk driver, tape driver, anything. Like when you turned it off, it forgot everything that it had ever known, and when you turned it back on, you had to program it all back in again by typing on it. And I typed in this little game that had this little spaceship that would go from left to right. It was made out of like eight pixels, and it would shoot the thing that was coming towards it, and that was it. That was the very first game that I ever typed in, you know, and I got it. Back then we used to buy these books, you know, that had programs in it. That's you didn't even buy discs. You bought books and you typed in the program that was in the book. And they were and all, I they, typed they, that they, in. They they had typos in them. <laughs> and it didn't yep, work. Yep. So you had to fix it. And then you you change things because that was the earliest version of modding. Yeah. And, and you think about a kid today that's just let's say just graduating high school. He's thinking about getting involved in game design. And he can go pick up a copy of Unity right now. I mean, you know, you can go pick up a copy of 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 the CryEngine for free and build a game on it. You know, <laughs> it's, it you know, to, to imagine to, to to be a high school student today and have the the power of of the Unreal Engine available to you for free if you're just you know if you just got the the, the wherewithal to pick it up and figure out how to use it. It's, it's amazing the power that developers have right now and it's changed everything in the industry. And I would love to say it was all for the better, but in many ways it's made being a developer very difficult. Okay. That's interesting. Something I ask at the show, a lot of developers, how they feel about the barrier of entry dropping so far as it is now to the point where many people don't know assembly anymore and that sort of thing, which back in the day, you in order to program anything at reasonable speed, uh, basic wasn't going to cut it. You had to typically, not always, not always, but typically you had to resort to using what was known back in the day as machine code. Or yeah, yeah. Um, 
what? So you sort of hinted that you're feeling that. Yes, mine, mine is not so much a matter of you know real men programming machine language. It, it's more a matter of the availability of middleware, the availability of tools, the speed at which you can, and and also, and it's not just from technology. It's also from a business side, right? I mean, again, back when back when I started making games, you sold games in a box in it at, at Best Buy. Huge and, boxes, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and, you couldn't just like walk down to Best Buy with a with a carton full of boxes and say, "Please sell my game." You had to go to E3 and convince a buyer to buy a couple hundred thousand copies of it, and and for that you had to have a publisher, and that publisher had to have those relationships, and there was a whole there was a whole thing that you had to be involved in. And now you can, you know, you want to put your thing on the App Store? Well, okay, do it. You don't have to talk to anyone, or you know, you want to put your stuff up on Google Play? Go. You want to put your stuff up on Steam? Have at it. Anyone can do it. And so the barrier to entry to make your product, the barrier of entry to release your product, both of those have come down so far that it has created the, the obvious result, which is an enormous glut of product. Yeah. And a, a lot of that product is frankly good. That, that's the hardest part about it is I, I think, you know, when we were younger and the industry was much smaller, there were a lot of creative individuals that would have loved to make games, but they weren't willing or able or, or aware of the work that they had to do to get a game at Best Buy and sell it. Yeah. And so they didn't. And so all of those wonderful ideas and all those wonderful games just died in somebody's head somewhere. Yeah. And now they're being presented on Steam. They're being presented on the, the App Store. And so if you're a mid-range size studio like ours, you know, that's got 20-some-odd people to pay every month, you're competing with two guys in a garage who are doing this as a part-time job. They they don't really care if their project fails. They can you know lower the price of their project quite low and hope for the best that maybe they're going to be the next Flappy Bird and they're going to make a fortune. And I'm, I'm not putting those guys down. I mean, those guys are great guys and they're coming out with, there is a lot of crap, but there's a lot of great content that comes out of those people. And it's made... It's, it's forced the industry sort of into two sides. Either you're making the next Assassin's Creed, which requires $300 million and a team of 500 people to make all the assets for a huge console game like that, or you're making um, a, a game like Crossy Road, which uh, I, I believe it took two guys to build that game over a period of about eight months. And I, I'm not putting those guys down. I happen to know the guy who made Crossy Road, a very nice guy named Matt. And more power to him. I'm great for his success, and I'm totally supportive of it. But it's very difficult for a mid-range studio that's making uh, payroll every month for 20 people to compete against that. Um, and it, it, it's made the industry a, a very boom-and-bust sort of place that, that, frankly, is very difficult to pay regular salaries in, to be quite honest. There's that added, added um, chaos element. I'm going to add uh, chaos. It's that... Uh, there's a show over here in UK called Resed, which has a section in it called Left Field, uh, and these games are not for commercial concern. They've been made purely for the sake of making them. <laughs> and people, and these games are very strange, uh, but that they're not, you know, you ask the developer, like, what? Are you going to sell this? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, how, do you, how do you financially compete against a guy who doesn't care if he makes money? I mean, exactly. it sounds really... Of, of mercenary, but you know, I I love games and I love the art of making games. But you know, come the end of the month, I've got twenty people that want to get paid, and yeah. they have 
families and, yeah. you know, grandparents with cancer and things that they got to pay bills for. And as much as I might love the art of games, I got to come up with paychecks for those people. Exactly. And so yeah. the, the, it, it's, it's very difficult to, comp- and, and, and what we've done, and this is not just games. This is the entire entertainment industry. It's the same with music. It's the same with books. It's the same with everything. The, the glut of content and the glut of people who are doing this for the love of doing it has created this huge pile of content and users have just learned, Oh, I don't have to pay for this. They, they, they consider entertainment to be as free as running water. And so they go to steam and they see a game and they say, well, why isn't this free? The last three games I played were free. Why isn't this free? And I don't have a great answer for them because from their point of view, they make a lot of sense. Why would they pay for my game when there's other games that qualitatively are quite good that are free? And that's, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to complain about this without sounding like you're whining, but it is a reality. Um, yeah, and, it's, and it's one that I know, you know, not just me, but a number of people like me who are running mid-sized studios are really struggling with this issue of do I, you know, make a demo and size up to a multi-million dollar project that I don't have to worry about the kids in the garage competing with me? Or do I, you know, quit and, and make this a part-time job and go work in the garage like everybody else and, and hope that I make my, my flappy bird? It's a... I would say this one thing is probably the biggest struggle in the industry right now for people of our size. Yeah, uh, it's um, there was the first question that I was going to ask you about uh, making. How did you make your start? But it sounds like you kind of answered that question. You've 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 been around for quite some time, and that's awesome. Uh, and uh, you you you've explained your your feelings on the uh, how things have evolved and changed in game development, and it's. So over the last five years, I think, what you just described has become quite prominent. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? You have people over there making, you know, spending two or three months making the game, and then somehow, you know, they, they just, it's just exploded in everyone's face, and it's all become billions and billions. And then you've got another person over there making a game for the sake of it. What am I supposed to do with that? You know, <laughs> you know and here I'm trying to earn a living. And I think it's a case of, you know, it's difficult to to explain to people that there has to be a perception of value, regardless of what medium it is, whether it's literature, a film, music. It's something I, I I'm very very passionate about. Any any creative endeavor typically has value to it, and yeah. that's something that should be. It's for some reason uh, it's hard to um, for for people to understand the concept of a painting or a book or something having inherent value you know actual financial value some some and i don't know there's a sense of entitlement certainly there's a problem but just that you know lack of understanding that hang on <laughs> this well, is well I, I think there's just a i think that it's not i mean there is a sense of entitlement i agree it's there but the bigger problem is they're right Right? I mean, just from a purely logical standpoint, if you're a guy and you go to the Steam store and you want to have a good time, there is so much quality, good, free content on the Steam store that it's very difficult for me to make an argument and say, yeah, don't play that, play my stuff, which costs money. Just from a purely logical standpoint, I, I have to really have some great content to, to make that argument stick. 
Yeah, I mean, so, Steam has a tab in it called Free Games. And there's good stuff on it. You know, if, if it were the case that you went there and it was all crap, then I could say, like, yeah, that's we're being our industry is being destroyed by crap product. But our industry isn't being destroyed by crap product. Our industry is being destroyed by really good product. <laughs> and that's that's really hard to fight. You know, and, and how do you go to these people and say, Hey, look, can you stop giving your shit away for free? Can you not do that? Um because it's not my place to tell somebody else how to value their work or to value their time. And so it's, it's, for me, it's a, it's a real struggle. We're actually doing an experiment with our, with Legends of Kalasia. Um, I'm setting a relatively high price point for it. Um, we actually put it in early access at 15 bucks. We're putting the full price point for the full game at 25 bucks. And I've had a lot of people tell me, you are crazy, Chris, to charge $25 for a game. Nobody pays $25 for a game anymore. And my response is honestly, you know what? They don't pay $8 for a game anymore either. So you know what? If if I'm going to convince somebody to reach in their pocket and pull out their wallet and pay for my game, 24 bucks is a fair price for a good game that has as much gameplay as our game's got in it. That's a fair price. And if they're not willing to do that thing, all right, then they're probably not willing to put their, po- their hand in their pocket for 10 bucks. They're probably not even willing to put their hand in their pocket for 6 bucks. And... We'll see. It's an experiment, and I might fail miserably at it, but there's a part of me that says, you know what, in this day and age, 25 bucks, that's going to the movie and ordering popcorn with one date, maybe. In in L.A., that's going to the movie alone and ordering popcorn, right? I know, and it, you try to equate this, you try to explain this, but it doesn't seem to get through. Uh Oh, I've had uh, people tell me that 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 a buck ninety nine is too much to charge for a game, yeah, and I'm like, that's the that's the price of a bottle of pop from a Coke machine. You, you really bottle, think yeah. that a game is not worth? If you're buying a, a five dollar cup of coffee at Starbucks, yeah, and then you're going to come whine to me that that this game that you're going to spend twenty thirty hours on isn't worth a buck and a half? Are you insane? <laughs> yeah, apparently they are. So, back on track. He says, as interviewer. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. Rant complete. <laughs> I hit a nerve, and I like hitting nerves, um, but not not in a bad way. But uh, and I, I enjoyed the rant. But as a creator, and this question is really hard to ask without sounding trite, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But as a creator, after all these years, what do you have you found yourself being most influenced by? I think this answer is maybe not the one you're looking for because it's, I think most people want to hear me say a bunch of really artsy stuff right now about how, you know, I had a vision quest and I found my spirit child or something like that. But it's, honestly, we've had all sorts of answers to this. One, the, the most star um, was my pet dog, which is great, but not, 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 I don't have a pet dog either. For <laughs> me, um, I've, I've been both, I'm the creative director of the studio. I, at one point in my life, went and got an MBA. And because of that, I'm also the business director of the studio. I got saddled with that job. And that that bridge between being the business person and the creative person, there, there's two people that started the company, myself and my partner, Alan Simonson. And Alan is the programmer and the technical side, and he handles all the you know, real work. And I, I deal with you know the creative side and, and the the business side and the business side of the creative enterprise for me has been fascinating. And I've spent a lot of time looking at how do you create a profitable business venture within entertainment 
without selling your soul as a creator or an artist. And I do believe that game developers are artists. I'm not going to have that discussion. I'm just going to put that out as my belief. I'm not going to have the is games art discussion now, but I believe that they are. Um, and I believe that people that make games are artists. And I believe that we have a, a responsibility to craft and, and, and make good art. But we also have a responsibility to our staff to get them paid and to make sure that the people that work at our studio have decent lives and, and fair pay. And trying to meld those two together, I spend a lot of time looking at inspirational people who have done that in other fields. Um, actually, uh, I was I was extremely uh, sad to see the, the, the death of Prince recently. He, he's sort of an idol of mine. And I'm not even that big a Prince music fan. I, I like some of Prince's tunes, but I don't, I don't spend a lot of time listening to Prince. But if you go back and look at his career and look at the fights that he had with his publishers and the way he solved them and the way that he ended up being a self-publishing artist, I remember I watched an amazing interview with him once where he was talking to somebody about, you know, self-publishing and stuff and saying, you know, back when I used to work for, you know, I forget who it was, Warner Brothers or whoever, his publisher, um, you know, we would sell millions of albums and I would come home and I wouldn't have any of that left for me. And now I go out and I sell a hundred thousand albums, but that's a big payday for Prince because it's all mine. And I, I, I remember that interview really spoke to me and I said, yeah, that's, that's the thing. If you really want to have creative control over what you're doing. And that's what Prince's arguments were always about was he wanted to do this thing. And people were telling him, no, you can't do that thing. You have to do this thing that's, that, that's going to make more money. Um, for me, there's always that tension. And I think over the last few years, to be quite frank, I failed in this. Uh, we did some free to play games that I didn't totally believe in, but that seemed like the right business decision. And, and I've over the last, I guess, six or um, last eight or eight or ten months sort of woken up and said, no, what, what I need to do is I need to take control of how we do our business as a critical part of how we create creative content. Um, and again, not to talk too much about my game, but this was a lot of the reason for making a game that is very much not a free-to-play game, uh, very much the reason why we made a game that uh, that really focuses on a smaller niche market and saying, let's provide this group of gamers with exactly what they want and let's not worry so much about, you know, is this what the market says is the right thing to do? And let's, for the love of God, not work with a publisher, because I don't want anyone telling me how to make this game. I want to be in control of that. And the only way that you can be in control of that is to fund it yourself. And so a another great idol of mine, uh, Frank Zappa, is another artist who spent a great deal of his time as a working artist, not just looking at how does he make, you know, functional art, but how does he fund that art? How does he deal with his marketing and his distribution? And how does he create a business around that? Um, for me, these are my inspirations because if you can free yourself from the person who's financing what you're doing, if you can free yourself and be talking directly to your customers, if you can get rid of all those middlemen, the best buys and the ad agencies and the publishers and all that other stuff and get right down to, I'm making a game and these are the people who are playing my game and I'm talking to them and they're paying me. If you can get down to that place, and this is what I think is the best development in games right now, is you can get to that place. And I'll talk some more about this later. Getting to that place is spiritually enlightening as a game developer. And I, I mean that in a completely non-cheesy... I have found myself and found happiness and 
and, and in being able to, to dig right down to the gamer and, and, and say, this is what I'm making and let's play it together and tell me what you want it to do and tell me how we can make this better and tell me what's more fun and let me watch you play. That experience versus I'm going to go to a business meeting in Los Angeles and have a couple people who played my game once and said, yeah, you know, actually we've been playing this other game that's doing really well. Do you mind taking this big bunch of shitty ideas that didn't come from you and shoehorning them into your game because that's what we think will make an extra 10% when we, it's a totally different world. And so for me, that's been my, my spiritual awakening. It's all about money. Yes. Yes. There's a, this reminds me, so you're inspired by the business business model and actually being understanding that how to achieve the, what I said earlier about um, art has value. And that's, that's, that's great. That's, that's a fantastic answer. And it reminds me of, there's an ad, ad campaign, uh, here in the UK where we have, um, uh, a drink called Oasis, um, which yeah. is basically uh, sugar water. And it's got an ad and it basically says, it's hot. You're thirsty. And we have sales targets. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. It's like only in the UK would we get away with an ad like that. It's like That's brilliant. Yeah, you have sales targets. I've got to take a photo of it and send it to you. It's just like wow. It's just like yeah, just we're not going to pretend. No picture yeah. of an attractive woman or person or man or whatever on a beach. No. Just a photo of the bottle, and you're thirsty, it's hot, and we have sales targets. <laughs> you know, I think we have, we've reached a more enlightened world. People know more now than yeah. they used to know yeah. about the machine that runs them. They get it. And the, I, I have actually kind of fallen in love with the millennial generation. They're, they are an interesting generation. These people that, that graduated re- relatively recently They've grown up in a world that's always had Wikipedia, that's always had Internet, that's always had Facebook, a world that's always connected, and a world where they have been sold at and consumerized from the time they were little, tiny, diaper-wearing babies. Yeah. And they're savvy. They get it. They understand the machine. And they are they are so, you know, I'm dead solid Generation X. And we were the generation that, I guess, first started, like, pointing out the machine and saying, yeah, we're kind of being sold a bill of goods here from the corporations that's not right. But the, yeah. the, the millennials, they, they, they sort of just said, yeah, we're going to go with it. You know, yeah, well, I'm being sold too. I understand it. Why not? You know, they, they've, they've, they've got a totally different way of looking at the world. And it's been fascinating for me to, to interact with them more as we've been building products for them and, and, and talking to them and seeing the way that they, they understand marketing in the way that, that we understand algebra and math, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how the two generations do clash sometimes. I wish we wouldn't, but we do. And uh, it's uh, we have more common ground than we realize. But, yeah, it's uh, an interesting time. So I find it's very difficult to pull the wool over their eyes. Yeah. I find, I find it is very difficult to... To, to bullshit a millennial because they have just they have had so much of it for so much of their lives that they their their radar for it is just so finely tuned. So on to more positive question: Who do you most <laughs> admire in the video game industry and why? It can be a company or a person. Um, so I grew up playing Sid Meier's games. Ah, I, I am a Sid Meier 
fanboy beyond belief. Um, I, I, uh, Civilization, that's, that's my jam. I've played every episode, every version of Civilization. I've played, I don't know how many hours I've put into it. Um, Pirates, oh my, I've spent so much time on Pirates. Um, and I think what I've always loved about Sid Meier and his games is that feeling of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hand this game over to you and I'm gonna let you make your game. I'm going to, I'm not going to, you know, there was a story in Pirates, but you know what? I don't remember it or care and nobody does because that wasn't the game. The game was about you going out and making your own story and having your own adventures and doing the things you wanted to do. And that was so long before we started talking about sandbox gaming or anything like that, right? I mean, I played Pirates on Apple II, right? I mean, this is back in the day, the idea that here, just take this, have fun with it. Civilization, there's no story in Civilization. Go, make your own, have a good time with it. There's, there's so much creative goodness in those games. There's so much, uh, ability for you to put yourself into that game and, and build something and point at it and say, look at the civilization I built. Look at this, look at this fleet that I built of ships and look at my, you know, it's all, those games have always been about letting you build something for yourself and the designers not interjecting their story or their need to tell you what they want to tell you. And I, and I, I know that there are other games that are very different that other people are really into. I know that, that a lot of people want to, uh, you know, have very specific movie-like experiences. For me personally, I've always loved the way that Sid Meier looked at games. Uh, I actually had the tremendous fortune to meet him once. Um, in fact, I had a job interview with him uh, years and years ago. I was actually interviewing for the job of producer for, I believe it was Civ 4. Yeah, it was Civ 4. I, I actually made it all the way to the interview with Sid Meier. I didn't get the job. Um, and a, a thing that has haunted me to this day. I've been so sad about that. But I remember when I, I had the chance to meet him. It was the only time I ever met him. I had like a 30 minute interview with a man. And he was the warmest, nicest, humblest, down the earth guy you could hope to meet. I had the interview in his office. His son was there in the corner playing with some blocks or something. And I just had this wonderful conversation with this wonderful man. And I can remember thinking at the time, tell me which one of my arms I need to saw off to get this job. Because I would <laughs> go to the parking lot and do that right now. Um, yeah. I ended up not getting the job, but it's been one of the greatest regrets of my life. But I still have great respect for everything the man has done. He's, a, he's by far a legend. I know it's a cliche answer. Everybody says Sid Meier, but... Sometimes great people are great because they're great. And you got to say, when, when somebody asks who's great, yeah, he's great. He's the I, Muhammad Ali of, of games. He's the 800-pound he's the gorilla. You can't deny it. Well, I have um, some interview, interviewees. They come across and say, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. <laughs> and they're like, because the industry is relatively small in many respects. And uh, still, um, in many regards. So they like, uh, they're about that person and is that person... And uh, it's and you and then they get the other side of the scale where you have people like yourself going. Well, there's these amazing people and icons who have really done amazing things and contributed massively to the development and evolution of video games. And Sid Meier is definitely, definitely one of them. And he doesn't appear to have an ego, which is why you know you were taken by him. Like when you have someone like that, so like, I made this game, I guess. 
it was based kind of on an Avalon Hill game ish. And yeah. is that is that okay? Is it all right? Is it is it good? I don't know. Is it any good? And it, not many how many times you tell him it's awesome. You go. Yeah, one of the was, one of the real like thing. What, just a, a little story that I remember about. I was I was talking to uh, some of the other people in the studio because when I went and interviewed, I didn't just talk to the the Sid Meier. I talked to the rest of the studio and went through other interviews. And somebody told me during that process, they said uh, Sid Meier really wishes that we could take his name off of the games and we actually forced him to put his name on the games because we sell so many more copies of it when we call it Sid Meier's Civilization but he because there's so many other people involved in the process he doesn't really want to have his name on it anymore but the marketing department forces him to do it because it just it just it's an increase in sales and we all make more money so we all ask him to please put his name on the game so when you talk about ego here's a guy that that you know, if anyone in the industry has a right to stick his name on a product, Sid Meier's got a got a right to stick his name on Sid, right? But given given his choice, from what I understand, he would have rather given the credit to the team that's been working on the latest editions of it. But for for marketing reasons, they stuck it on there anyway. I don't know if that story is 100% true or not, but that's what I was told by people at uh, Paraxis. So I always thought that was a very telling story about what a what a great guy he is. So a final question about him for hours. <laughs> Clearly. So the final question of this first half, and I know it's it's sad that we got first the first half. Well done. It's kind of like you know levels in a video game, and this is the final boss of the first right. level. So it's quite easy, but I like asking it because it gives me a hint as to what interests you as a creator and a developer, uh, and also possibly what you're working on next. No, normally it doesn't actually, but I like to think it does. The question is, uh, what are you playing right now, other than the game you're working on? <laughs> well, like all developers, 90% of my time has been spent playing what I'm working on right now. We'll talk about that in a bit. Um, what I play when I've got some spare time, and I'm so... I have my relaxing games. I have games that, like, uh, they're my toilet games, they're my riding on a train game, they're my... And, and I, I find that when I'm not playing my own games... I want to really turn my head off and just relax. I've been playing a lot of Orbital lately. I don't know if you've played Orbital. Um, it's this dead simple uh, iPhone, Android game, and you just shoot these little balls, and the balls make a little circle, and you try to make more circles. I mean, it's, it's really that dead simple. Orbital is and one of my favorite iOS games. I, I it's, swear... It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I've had that thing on my phone for must be eight years or so now. Yes, I've had that thing yes. on my phone since I've had a phone. Yeah. And I yeah. still play it. Like, I don't, eight I mean, years. to be quite frank, I'm not sure I'm capable of going to the bathroom without it. I, <laughs> I think without that game, I would be stopped up for like a week. It's like, it just wouldn't happen. So, yeah, that one I'm really addicted to. The other game that I play, and, and the complete other side of the spectrum, when I, when I sit down and I've actually got some real time to play a game, I play Crusader Kings. Um, right. Which you you couldn't get any less orbital than Crusader. No, it's the, it's the antithesis, isn't it? It's like uh, really. But <laughs> but I I love Crusader Kings for the for the exact same reasons I love everything I just said about Sid Meier. This idea here here's Europe. Go do something with it, right? Yep. And and it's totally you. There's no story. There's no you know. You're gonna build your story. You're gonna do your thing. I've put I don't know how many hundreds of hours into that thing. 
And you play it again and again. Okay, this time I'm going to start out as Ireland. This time I'm going to start out as, you know, Prussia. And I'm going to build this story and, you know, I'm going to have kids that have two heads because they were marrying their cousins. And there's all kinds of wonderful emergent stuff in that game. Um, but the other reason I, I play a lot of Crusader Kings, to be very frank, is because it kind of plays itself, right? I mean, you, I've got two monitors. I stick that thing over on my left-hand monitor and I just let it play at a really slow speed. And I, I work and do this because a lot of my work is, you know, creative direction is just answering questions and being in conversations with people. And there's a little bit of downtime there where I'm like, okay, I, you know, I type out my answer to a question. I'm waiting for someone to say something. So I'll go over to the other monitor and, you know, check and see how my kingdom's coming along. So it, it's a, it's a great, I'm going to dedicate 35% of my brain to this game and leave it running on the screen a lot. I do that a lot. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm playing, it's a paradox game, isn't it? Um, so I'm yeah. playing Stellaris a lot at the moment, which is quite extraordinary. I have watched a couple streams of Stellaris. I've watched a couple uh, videos of Stellaris, and I'm refusing to buy it because I know it will eat my life. It will destroy you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, that looks so good, and that looks like so much fun, and I really want to be a part of that. But I know I could just take – that's what, starting a game like Stellaris is like saying, I'm going to get a part-time job now, and I'm not going to take it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've applied for a part-time job building empires for Stellaris, and I'm not going to get paid. That's what you're agreeing to. The worst thing about that game, and not the, or the worst or the best thing about that game, is you can make your own race. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful game. Paradox is a wonderful studio. And I, I actually I, I want to shout out to them. That they're, I mean, anyone who plays Collasia will, will see. I, I like Paradox games. You can see yeah. that pretty yes. quick and clear. Um, and I'm, I'm honest about it. I'm not going to pretend I don't love their games or have played their games or been inspired by their games. Absolutely, I have. Um, I think that studio, not just their games, but I think that studio is a really good example of what I think the future of games looks like. Um, very solid studio, very capable developers, very quality games, but they're making games at a level of quality that a couple guys in the garage can't match, but they're not making Assassin's Creed. They're not, they don't need 300 people to make their games. They've got reasonable size, you know, mid-sized development teams making very high quality games for a very specific audience that wants to play that exact game and they want to get very engaged in it. And I think they may have hit upon the, the solution to a lot of the problems that we were talking about earlier, uh, for the industry right now, because it's very difficult for two guys in the garage to match that. Yes. Yeah, this it's the maths. Oh God, <laughs> of yes. getting, the, getting those games to work. And yes, I mean, I bought it. I bought, I bought a copy. I didn't, you know, didn't wait for a sale. I just bought it because I knew it was yeah. going to be amazing, and it is. And, and and I'll also say I like their business model. And and I'll be frank, we're largely copying it. Um, <laughs> you know, here, yeah. here's your game. Here's a reasonable price for your game. You're going to pay it. Oh, you like this game? You're having a good time with it? All right, a couple months down the road, we're going to release some downloadable content for it. That downloadable content is going to have a very good value. We're going to charge you a reasonable price for it. We're not going to free-to-play it to you. We're not going to dip it out over dips and drabs. Um, I think that's a fair business model. I think to the to the consumer, that's a very fair business model. Um, I I would like to see our I would like to see paradox and the way that they build games and the way they approach their audience to be a lot more common in the industry. I have a lot of respect for that studio. Thanks for that. We're now going to move on to the second half of the show. 
uh, where we go in deep detail, I like to think anyway, on Legends of Kalasia. Chris, first question, it's not really a question, it's your time to pitch Legends of Kalasia to us. What is it? Alright, so the, the quick answer is, uh, and try not to get bored, it is a simultaneous turn-based fantasy strategy game. Um, that's a lot of words. Uh, the short version is, it's kind of a weird mashup of Heroes of Might and Magic, Risk, and Crusader Kings. Um... And it's a hell of a lot of fun. The, the, the heart of it was, I love these big epic, uh, games. I, you know, we've talked about Civilization, Crusader King. The problem with these games for me is the multiplayer on them sucks because it's, and, and it's, and it's because they're very long games. If you're playing a game that takes a weekend or four or five days to play, trying to get in a multiplayer version of that and convince somebody to be involved in that and do it turn based. Again, you're talking about a part time job and. We wanted to make something where you could play a real strategy game where you, you know, you have heroes, heroes control armies, armies take over territories, territories produce resources, the resources build buildings that allow you to get more resources and produce more armies. That very classic strategy game gameplay, but to be able to do that in a, a digestible chunk where I could sit down, I could play this game and I could be in a game and out of a game in less than two hours. And importantly, where I could do that in multiplayer. And I was, when I was younger, I was a, a big diplomacy player. And I, 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 I flat out stole that concept from diplomacy. The idea of we could make this game go a lot faster if everybody were to plan their turn at the same time, then resolve their turn at the same time, and then plan again. And the emergent gameplay from that is the exact same that it is from diplomacy, where I don't know what the other players in the game are going to do until I've committed to what I'm going to do. And so it, it creates this wonderful multiplayer action, and, and it comes out in single player as well, because the AI are essentially uh, kind of dumb multiplayer people. It runs the exact same way, where when I'm planning out all my moves, I'm not just thinking about what did the player before me just do and how do I respond to it. I'm actually trying to think about what will the player do on this turn, and can I position myself correctly to be in the right position to attack or to have the right defense bonuses or attack bonuses. Um, it creates a very deep, rich experience, but an experience where a turn, instead of taking, you know, uh, hours and hours, uh, a turn takes a, a couple minutes and you can get through. And, and also a game where it doesn't matter how many players I have, it doesn't get reasonably slower because all of those players are taking their turn at the same time. So you end up, the play, the game actually plays with up to eight players, multiplayer, and the eight player games are loads of fun because you're, you're still going at a very, very fast clip, 
but you've got alliances being formed. You've got people promising each other to do their different things and backstabbing and changing alliances. Um, there, that's a very long-winded answer. I should probably shorten that to 30 seconds, but I'm not very <laughs> No, it's okay. The listeners of this fine show have a very long attention span, so you'll be fine. Um, I know, but I need, I need one of those 30-second elevator pitches for the game. I haven't found it yet. And no. Considering no. We're, we're launching in like a couple days, I probably should have that by now, but I'm, again, not a very good filter. I think your mashup of uh, saying, oh, it's like Risk, it's like this, like that, that, that works, because that's, you know, people have you know, can relate to it. Um, and for, you know, speaking personally, I'm a huge board game fan, so there's a game called Eclipse, um, yeah. which um, suffers quite badly from analysis paralysis. So my... My 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 uh, counter to that is I have an egg timer in my copy of the game, and I basically put it in front of people. Go, you got three minutes. What yep. do you, to do your move? What you have three minutes. You're still talking. Please do your move. I'm not going to be here well, for nine hours. <laughs> it, it defined a lot of our creative choices. It's interesting when somebody first sits down and plays the game, especially if they're somebody who's played a lot of strategy games. Um, their initial 20-second reaction is, oh, wow, you could do all of this really, really, you know, complex stuff. And and, and they, it, it seems at first relatively simple. And we have kept it relatively simple because of, because of the egg timer, right? Because you've got three or four minutes, and you can't spend those three or four minutes, you know, adding one hit point to this castle and, oh, I'm going to go research this, you know, eight branch of some, you know, esoteric tree which gives my archers an extra... 2% chance of, you know, that's great in a big, huge strategy game that you're willing to spend a month on. But if I'm trying to get you through a game in, and, 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 and for us, the, the time limit that we wanted to put on it was, was based on board games because I wanted it to have a feel of a board game. And I should mention, it's actually available on Steam in early access, but we're also going to be releasing it quite soon on iOS and Android. And it plays wonderfully on a tablet. And you get four or five people around with a, with tablets or, or laptops playing it, and it has a board game feel. We wanted it to have that same length and that same feel of, all right, we're going to get in, we're going to talk to each other, we're going to make some jokes, we're going to have some fun, but, you know, we all got stuff to do, and in another three hours, this experience will be done, and we can either choose to do another one, or we can, you know, move on with our lives. Um, that that timing and, and that feeling that we wanted for the game was very much defined by board games, and it made us a lot of times say, "Yeah, this is a very computer gamey decision. Let's go with the more board gamey decision because of the egg timer, because of the the concept of of trying to keep the game pretty snappy." Yes, and it it it's it, it, it really has worked out that way. I definitely feel that because this leads on to my next question, and again, not not uncommon for developers on this show to almost predict what I'm about to ask them um, which is, I don't know maybe unpredictable or it's it's just you understand your game way better than I but I want to ask you about the simplification of the game because it is flowing very very quickly and much quicker than most strategy games which is a little jarring when I started playing I thought is this too simplified so um, I know it isn't but I want to ask you about the combat because that struck me as like I don't have a lot of interaction here. I'm, I am I just throwing numbers against numbers? I know I'm not, but um, could you talk us through how that works? Yeah. So the the basic uh, mechanics of the game is you have heroes, and your heroes uh, very heroes of might and magicy in this sense. Your heroes are basically a repository for your armies, and the armies are the things that are actually fighting. Your heroes are essentially a 
a pile of adjustments that I'm going to add to the army and a control mechanism, right? So let's say I'm going to bring uh, Chris Burr. It's a big bear in my game. So Chris Burr is going to be my hero. And Chris Burr comes with uh, a uh, – he has a race. Uh, so he's he's of the, the Feyborn. And so when I start the game, I have to choose one of the factions. He's of the Feyborn faction. So if I choose the Feyborn faction, that means you can only use Feyborn armies and Feyborn uh, heroes. And so if I – so Feyborn is a – I'm sorry. Chris Burr is a Feyborn uh, hero. He's also a, a wizard, um, and because he's a wizard, that gives him access to special cards that you can play during combat, which are wizard cards, and specifically wizard cards that are available to the Feyborn. And he has uh, bonuses, which he will give to the units that he's in control of. So let's say he's got an army of treants and phoenixes and satyrs, um, which are traditional Fey troops. So... The CRISPR, his special ability is when he's fighting on a property or on a territory that he doesn't own, then he gets plus 50%. And that means all of his units get plus 50%. It's a quite heavy bonus, right? Um, but on his own territory, he doesn't get that. And every hero has a similarly strong, very straightforward, very simple, but very powerful bonus that they're going to apply to the troops. Now, each one of the different troops have their own attack strength and their own defense strength. And it's very straightforward. The attack strength is basically uh, 1D that. So if I say I've got a man-at-arms who has an attack strength of 6, that means he gets to roll 1D6 every time he attacks and do that many points of damage. So if I've got a stack of 30 men-at-arms, that's going to be 30D6. It's going to roll that much damage. And they're going to go apply that damage to somebody. Um, their defense is how much of that damage can they take. So if I've got a stack of treants, and those treants each have 10 hit points each, and that's a 10, 10 treant stack, that's 10 by 10, it's 100 hit points. So my men-at-arms are going to do, you know, 30d6 damage, they roll it, let's say they come up with, uh, I don't know, 100, um, and they are up against the uh, treants with a total defense of 120, I subtract 100 from 120, I kill enough treants to get me down to the last 20 treants, and I'm done, right? Um, I'm pretty straightforward. But, and, and it was meant to be very straightforward. Um, and this is resolved in a sort of Heroes of Might and magic battle screen where you get to see them go up against each other. And it plays out very much like, if you remember in Heroes of Might and Magic, you could press the autoplay button and it would just like auto-resolve your battles for you. Yes. Imagine yes. the auto-resolve was always turned on. And the reason we did that, again, yes. was we wanted to keep the game very snappy. If at that moment we said to somebody, all right, you can decide this tree is going to attack that stack of skeletons, but this lich is going to attack that phoenix, then everyone else in the game, let's say it's an eight-player game, they've all got to sit around and wait for you to figure that out. That would have drugged the game back very far. But we also recognize that people are going to want to have some control over that. And yeah. so what we did is we gave the units very specific special abilities which influence that. So, for instance, uh, we have, I'm trying to think which, uh, the guards, the, the human, the hundred kingdoms, which is our human units, they have guards, and the guards have a frontline ability. The frontline ability means when people attack an army that includes guards, they're always going to attack the, the guards first. And so it's a very reasonable strategy for a player to say, let's make an army that's got a bunch of catapults in it, and also a bunch of guards, the catapults are going to do huge damage, but they're very squishy. They're going to get killed very easy. But I've got a bunch of guards with them, so when somebody attacks, the guards are going to soak up the damage while I'm putting out a bunch of damage with the catapult. 
But then I've only got two stacks, so I probably want to have a third and a fourth stack because I've got availability for more stacks of army that are going to do something else in that, so I'm producing more attacks per turn. So there is a very deep strategy of putting together a mix of armies and then thinking about how am I going to make that work with the heroes. So, for instance, uh, Kaylee, which is one of the Fey heroes, has a bonus to uh, missile attacks because all the attacks are either missile or melee. So maybe I'm going to want to make sure to put a big pile of archers with Kaylee, but I'm going to want to put a big pile of men-at-arms with uh, Skele- uh, King, who's actually got a very strong uh, attack strength. And so there's all of this depth in the game that as you get better at the game and you start realizing how to play it better, there is a real opportunity for you to get good and to get better than other people because you're using the right advantages and using the right armies. But... If you don't want to think about any of this and you just want to get in and like throw your armies up against other people and say, well, I got 15 units and you got 15. Let's see what happens. You can do that. And as long as everyone in the game is, you know, equally ambivalent to the strategy, you can still have kind of a fun game. But once you start bringing players that are really caring about the map and really caring about the, you know, min maxing their advantages, you can get really good at the game. We've been having a, a series of tournaments, one-on-one tournaments, and they were actually arranged by one of our players. We put the game in early access. Um, and by the way, this is, if you ever want, the one bit of advice I will give from this that you must take, oh my God, put your game in early access and start live streaming it. We did this. I live stream the game every day. I do a live stream, uh, I think it's uh, like 10 o'clock uh, Eastern time in the States. There's a Legends of Galatia live stream. I live stream every day and I play our game. I test our game. And people come and talk about how we're going to do it. Some of the people who were watching our live stream got so excited about the game, they said, do you mind if we organize a tournament? I said, hell yeah, let's do it. And so um, uh, uh, one of our wonderful players, a guy that goes by Merlin, um, organized this one-on-one tournament. And watching this tournament take place and watching our better players just absolutely destroy the newer players. And I've been absolutely overjoyed to see it because it means... You can get good at our game. It's not all random numbers. There, there are things that you can learn and strategies that you can learn. And watching the good players, you know, get in these huge, long discussions about, no, you should bring this unit or on this move, you really should have moved that guy there. But, and this gets, I'm sorry, that's a huge run on answer, but this gets back to one of the reasons I always loved Sid Meier. One of his rules was all of the decisions in a game should always be important decisions. And I think that's been a rule that's allowed this to happen. So, you know, Skeleton, he doesn't add a plus 5% bonus. He adds a plus 25% bonus to every attack in the game, right? Um, these are big decisions that you're making. And because it's a short game full of big strategic decisions, everything you do feels important. And this creates a, a real, a real feeling during the game of, wow, I want to play that again because I know I screwed up here and here. And I bet I could do it better because those were big decisions I made wrong. That part of the game, I think, works very, very well. Wow, that yes. was a long. It was a long. We do like long answers. I would have cut you off earlier, but I know you were getting to a very crucial point there, and uh, you're right. Um, the best games have it so that none of the decisions you make in it are trivial. So that's yeah. that's, that's important. Um, so visually, the game is really impressive. Um, I was quite taken aback by how glorious and celebratory it is about itself. The contrasting colours, it really pops from the screen. Um, 
however, I say however, I did notice that there's not a lot of animation going on uh, within the icons. I mean, can you tell us that, 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 I'm assuming that was obviously a conscious decision, but what drove that? The thing is, I think we're a much smaller, cheaper studio than people think we are. Um, right. The game looks pretty good. We're actually a very small indie studio. Um, what we did before we made this game, we used to make, we were one of the largest providers of hidden object games for Big Fish games. Uh, we did the Awakening series, the Dana Nightstone series, Otherworld, a bunch of sort of the top hidden object games. And I, I know a lot of serious gamers like to poo-poo hidden object games, and that's for old ladies. And they, they are. The old ladies love them. We made great games for old ladies. And what we developed over that period of time was... Uh, a group of incredible graphic artists that can paint great, pretty, still-life pictures, because that's what those games required. Um, this was their skill set. So when we looked at doing a strategy game, you know, we originally, when we talked about it, should we do it in 3D? Should we have little animated characters moving around? And yada, yada, yada. We could have done that, but we didn't have internally the skill set to do that. If you play the game and you look at it, you will be amazed to know that all of that art was created by like three or four guys and, and gals, I should say. There was, there was a, we have a, a, a number one working on the project as well. Um, it wasn't a huge team that made that, but what they are really skilled at um, is making good 2D art quite quickly. And so that we could do. We knew we had that skill set. And so we sort of designed the whole game to have that very 2D feeling because we knew we could pull that off. Whereas if we had tried to do a lot more of 3D elements or really complicated animations and stuff, um, we probably, our indie roots would have suddenly shown and people would have realized, oh wow, these guys are not really a very big studio and they're not really good at that. So that, that was the other, that was part of it. The other part of it was, I like the retro feel. Um, I like the board game feel. I was, I got into games originally as a big Dungeons and Dragons player. I used to be a DM in a role playing group. And I used to love, you opened up the old D&D games and there was, you know, the, the big map of the world of Greyhawk or the big huge map of Forgotten Realms. And when we started the game, I, I wanted it to feel like that. I wanted to feel like you could put your finger on that beautiful Forgotten Realms map that used to come with that campaign setting and move units around and take over territories and see that map change and adjust. That was the dream that I had for how this game would look. And I, I think we've really achieved that where the game feels retro, but it's not pixel art. You know, I mean, there, there's a lot of games that want to go retro and their, their, their immediate take on retro is let's make it look like an old NES game. And that's fine. If people want to do that. That's it's quite fine. interesting though that, that, but they don't. No NES could possibly do the animation yeah. and shading that those games have. Like, <laughs> well, and, and to be frank, it's hard. Pixel art's not easy, right? No, it's Doing not. that kind of pixel art is actually a lot of work. Yeah. Um, so I, I personally, and this gets into my taste as opposed to my judgment as to the quality of other games, but my personal taste is, you know what? I made games back when we had to make pixel art, right? I don't, I don't want to go back to that. I, yes, I lived yeah. that. I don't, I don't need to remember that. I live in a world where we can make real art now. So I wanted the game to have beautiful, real, you know, vibrant art, but I wanted it to feel classic old Dungeons and Dragons, classic. I wanted it to look like what, what Heroes of Might and Magic 1 wanted to look like if they could have made, if the, if the graphics capability of computers had, had been capable of doing it. 
That yes. was that was my dream for the game. And I I think we've kind of done that. I think that's kind of how it comes across. It comes across as a as a really beautiful classic game, but it is not classic. It's brand new. Yeah, the the art quality. I mean, you get production quality of board games now, which are well, it's getting ridiculous now. <laughs> Some of them yeah. are astonishing, absolutely astonishing. It, it reminds me a little bit of Small World. Not a game I particularly like because the problem with Small World is that you find that you think you've got options and turns out you haven't. You've only got one. Um, and you have to do that, otherwise you will fail quite badly. But the, 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 the presentation of, uh, of Legend of Callista really reminds me a lot of Small World. Uh, but uh, that's 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 as far as the comparison goes. Everywhere, everything else, the two games could be more different. But um, one's fun, one isn't. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you another one that that most people don't get. But now that I tell you this and you go look, you'll realize it. Uh, Legend, our, our Lords of Waterdeep. Oh yes. Um, what, what I actually love that game. I love Lords yes. of Waterdeep. Yes. And I, I I I particularly like the iOS version of it actually. And I remember looking at that beautiful Lords of Waterdeep map and thinking, I want to play a game where I can touch that map, right? Because, I mean, in Lords of Waterdeep, you you got cards and stuff. It's still very, very board gamey. But I remember looking at that map and thinking, like, I want to take over parts of that map. That was my my dream. And so when we made the game, I I really wanted that feeling of these, these beautiful old maps, these board game quality maps that come out on the tabletop. I wanted to look at that, but I wanted to be able to, and and I actually prefer playing it on an iPad. I think it's a very wonderful tactile game on an iPad. I love being able to, you know, put my finger down on that map and scroll it around and, you know, click and say, you go there on that map. Like this is just a, a wonderful experience for me because I wish I could do that on a, on a tabletop game. So yeah, I'm very excited for when we get the, the tablet version out in another month or so. Finally, I know all good things come to an end. Um, I do have one more question. We haven't mentioned it yet, which I find quite interesting, but I think it's a core component of uh, Legends of Callista, or Klesia, as I say. Um, booster cards. There's these little cards that appear in the bottom right-hand yeah. corner that do so, wonderful things. Can you tell us about those? They actually came in rather late in the design. Um, we didn't used to have them. Um, what ended up happening was the game started to feel... Like, somewhere around the mid-game, you kind of knew, yeah, this guy's got the advantage. He's probably going to win. It became very deterministic. And I, I was really concerned because I don't, I don't want to be playing a game where I feel I can't possibly win. At the point at a game where I'm like, yeah, I can't, I can't come back from this, I suddenly totally lose interest in a game. And I, I was feeling that for my own game where I would see somebody who'd give up twice my size and be like, there's nothing I can do here. And so I wanted to have some ability for you to say, like, you know what? Bam, you thought you were going to win this combat, but bam, this thing's going to happen. Or, you know, you thought you had all the victory points because you've got that that huge territory. But you know what? Peasant Revolt right there in the middle of it. Or, you know, bam, here's the I'm going to play this tentacle card and this huge tentacle creature is going to show up in the middle of your territory. This ability to to come back and say you thought it was going to be like this, but actually, bam, it's like this. And then compounding that with the the planning resolution cycle where you don't get that surprise until you've already committed to your actions, right? So I know you're going to come over and attack my castle. You think this is going to be an easy fight, 
but bam, here's three reinforcement cards. No, it's not an easy fight, and you just walked into a huge, uh, you know, surprise attack. That ability to adjust the game through smart card play totally changed the game. Um, it absolutely changed the face of the game. It was the best addition we made to the game. It's a lot of fun. Um, and we find, actually, the thing that we can't stop building. We're literally shipping this game on Friday, and we're still adding stuff. We really, we really should stop. Um, just like yesterday, we added a, 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 a card that allows you to you know, create a whole bunch of treants and a big hero tree right in the middle of somebody. Because every time we add a card, the game gets more fun. And the best cards are the ones that are particularly designed to be played on somebody else. You know, there's some cards you play on yourself, but the cards that you play on somebody else, it creates this very interactive feeling of, I'm not just over here building my civilization and you're over building your little country and sooner or later we're going to clash. It's we're constantly interacting with each other. We're constantly poking at each other. We're constantly breaking each other's plans. That's been a lot of fun. I get the impression that they've been, there are late aspect because they, they modify things quite significantly to the point where it doesn't break the game, but they are an element of chaos in what seemingly seems to be something quite ordered. Uh, and that's hey. what the best, the best of the modifier cards do that. They like, you think you've got this beat, you know, there's a game I played recently called, um, Blood Rage and it's, it, it's mm. built around the cards really, uh, that and the map and stuff. But it has, there's a card in there that basically says all of the effects on your card that you just played, Oh, nothing. <laughs> yeah. We actually have that card. We have the negation card. It does exactly that. Um, yeah. And that's a great one. Because you, and, and the, the beauty of our game is it's predictive, right? Because you don't get to, it's not like some guy says, I'm going to play this card, this card, this card, this card. And then I say, oh, okay, well then I'm going to play this card. Instead, it's, I wonder what he's going to do. He's got yeah. this big, huge yeah. army. He's right next to my castle. I bet he's going to attack. And so I bet he's going to play a bunch of cards, you know, because there's you know, like a charge card and a trample card and all these cards that will improve his attack. And so I'll just play a lost card on him so he can't move next turn. And he doesn't know I played that. So he throws down all of his cards, turn resolution happens, and he's, he's ready to march in and just tear me apart. And then, bam, lost. All of his cards <laughs> wasted. And then on the next turn, I throw down a couple reinforcement cards and I attack him. And everyone's like, oh, and it, it, I'll tell you what's really fun. And, and I, 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 I think if you're not involving streamers and you're not involving live streaming in game development right now, you're making a huge error. This game streams so well because it's got that reveal. It's got that, oh, my God, I thought this thing was going to happen, but then this other thing happened. And then you've got a couple of minutes to kind of talk about it. But it's that reveal. It's that oh my god, my plans have been disrupted by this smart thing that the other player did. Yeah, the, the more best. we have that in the game, the more fun it is. It's the best board game conversations ever, isn't it? It's yep. like, I didn't see that coming. That's why I did yep. it! Okay. Yep. That's, it. That's exactly it. And it's that ability to... What, what makes it even more fulfilling as a thing that you did is that you didn't do it just as a response to what he did. You predicted what he did, and you did something you didn't expect. And when he thought his plans were going to happen, boom, some other stuff happened. And that, every time that plays out, it's, uh, it's always fun, you know, and it's, there's always people, oh my God, I can't believe that thing happened. It's so fun. And when, when we're streaming the game, one of the best things we do, we'll do, we'll do like a, an eight player stream 
am watching when one of the eight players who's allied to somebody else breaks an alliance and suddenly stabs his ally in the back. Oh my god, everybody loses their crap in the stream, and I can't believe you just did that. Whoa! That's always much fun. Yeah, yeah, backstabbing in Risk at games like that is like, yeah. don't, don't do it. Don't, please don't. Oh god. <laughs> What uh, I I yeah I ran into that one didn't I? Yes yes you did. Chris is yeah, we actually, and we formalized it. So in yeah. the game there's actually an alliance button. So you can actually declare an alliance, and when you declare an alliance, you can actually have an allied victory. And we pointedly made it so that you didn't do that during setup. You do that during the game, yes. so that you could change it during the game and adjust it. And there's always this like oh okay this guy's gonna win, and then bam his ally drops out and backstabs him. Having that stuff happen during game and having it formalized where you actually see it right there in the game. So and so has broken their alliance and so and so. It's much fun. Yeah. You can actually have systems where it punishes you for being a, a traitorous person. But uh, anyway, we could talk for hours. And I'd love to, but sadly, people won't want to listen to us talk for hours, maybe. But uh, Chris has been fantastic having you on. Uh, Kalasia is actually coming in early access, but imminently about to be formally released via Steam. Could you remind us what platforms it's on? So we are we are on Mac and PC in early access on Steam right now. Yeah. Um, it's actually we made it available in the free to play section, and the reason we did that is um, very specific. Uh, when you buy it there, there's only one free to play object to buy, and that's I'd like to unlock the rest of the game. So there's actually a free demo available right now. It is, yeah, um, free demo. That, yeah. that free demo has multiplayer in it. It has uh, it, 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 there's hours of gameplay in the free demo, um, including multiplayer and single player campaigns. Um, if you like it, there's a, you know you can you can do the one in app purchase which buys the game. And importantly, what that does is it sets you up with a, a user in our server. Later on, if you go grab that game on iOS or Android, which we're going to be releasing later this summer. Um, it will carry over all of your ranking. It'll carry over all your unlocks. It'll carry over everything to that new platform. And importantly, you won't have to pay for it again. So yes. basically, yeah. if you buy it on, and this is why we did it through the, 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 the free to play, because we needed to make sure that if you went and bought it over on iOS and, and got your user code, when you came over to Steam, we needed a free version on Steam for you to be able to grab and enter in your user code from iOS. Um, so, Regardless of what platform you buy it on, we're setting it up so that will give you a user code and you can open it up on any other platform. We'll, we're on Mac and PC on Steam right now. Early access is available right now. Um, we will be doing our full launch on Friday and we will be available on Android and iOS, uh, eminently. Ho- hopefully, uh, early July would be my guess. It's playable on both right now. We just have to get it through the Apple. I'm very happy that I discovered it at, uh, at PAX East, um, as walking by your booth, and your enthusiasm um, almost outshone the, <laughs> the the graphics that are on display. I was just really taken by it, and that's why I had to have you on the show when I saw it. So thank you for taking the time, your precious time, actually, to come and chat to us on the show. Uh, oh, thank you. It's always great to talk about what you're doing and, and have people be interested, but thank you so much for, for the opportunity. It's, it's, it's been great. And... Uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back on whether um, new projects you have or maybe talk about an extension to Legends of Kalasia. I don't mind. It's been great having you on. And, um, yeah, wish you the best of luck. Yeah, thank you.
And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me, any feedback on the show, or actually you're a developer, you listen to the show and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Also, don't forget to check out the Computer Game Show, which is the Stablemate podcast, should we say, of spong.com. Bye!